Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Gary Bowman for today's message. Well, good morning. Have a seat if you would. And uh, grab your Bibles and open with us to the Gospel of Luke, where we're studying Luke chapter 15, uh, page 1045 in that Bible that's there near you. And as you do that, let's pray together. God, thank you that it is you who initiated, who chased after us rebels and brought us back home, brought us back into to your fold. And Jesus, we didn't go looking for you. You came looking for us. We're so thankful today for your grace in our lives, for your rescue of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Yeah, that's better. Glad to see that you're awake. Um, So like home for most of us, not for all of us, but for most of us, home is like like the best place. And I know whenever we go on a vacation or I go on a missions trip, I love where I go and I love what I get to do, but I always love getting back home. There is just something, isn't there, that's familiar, that's um, safe, that's, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just comfortable there at home, right? Um, I think a lot of us have a pair of shoes that our spouse wishes we would get rid of. Um, but they're comfortable old shoes, right? They fit right. They, you slip them on and you're relaxed. Sunday nights for me is my Friday night. And um, I love getting home on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night and slipping on my comfortable shoes and making up popcorn and watching a movie. And there's just something really comfortable about that, right? And that's what, that's what home is like, isn't it, for most of us. It's, it's just this, um, this, this, it's us and we, we feel good at home. We feel right at home. When our missions team was in uh, Jordan, we were invited into many apartments of Syrian refugees. And these are apartments that, that none of you would choose to live in. None of you would want to live in. But for these Syrian refugees, this is where they are. This is where they are. And they've tried to do things to these run-down apartments to make it feel more comfortable. But, you know, to every, every one of those Syrian refugees in Jordan there, this was not home. And we asked many of the refugees as we would spend a couple of hours with them and hear their stories and then be able to share with them the story of Jesus. We would ask them, what did they miss most? And what almost all of them said to us is they missed their home. And almost all of them said that if they could do anything else in the world, it would be to go back to their home. And, and there is something, isn't there, about home, no matter where it is, that it's just the place we want to be. And the story that we're studying in Luke chapter 15, is a, it's a sad story because it's a story about two boys, two sons, who maybe some of this has been a surprise to you in our study, but two sons who have divorced their father. It's a story about two sons who have decided that home is not where their father is, but home is somewhere else. 
And both of the sons, in divorcing their father, have lost their home. They've lost their dad. They've lost their family. And these two sons have also lost that they're brothers. And so this divorce that these two sons filed for and brought about and now has been legally recognized has created this chasm in this family. And there where the father is, the home, the sons no longer are. And the story Jesus tells here is a story about the way we find our way back home, isn't it? Because all of us, every single one of us, has divorced our father. You have, and I have, and every single one of us has lost our way home. But this story is the story of the way that we discover we, the, the, we discover how to get back home. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that despite the ugly rebellion of both of these sons, and you and me, against our Father, that our loving Father comes out and invites each of us to come back home. That's what the story's about. About this loving father who... who well, well, think about, think about the, the younger, the, the openly rebellious son. And, and he, he's, he's been a rascal, right? This guy has been a real rascal. A sinful rascal. And, and he's divorced his dad... Now, his dad could have, as sometimes I want to do, when my kids disobey me, when my kids go the wrong way, I, I, I can rehash and retell and retell to my wife the story of how the kids didn't do what I thought they should do. or um, uh, they, uh, Well, we're, we're not going to do that again because they did this. And, you know, and, and, and the father could have just told that story over and over and over. He could have paced up and down in his house. And that son of mine, that rascal son of mine, I can't believe what he did. I can't be- believe the shame that he brought into my life. I can't believe that any son of mine would do that. But the father doesn't do that, does he, in our story? Chapter 15, verse 20. But instead, in the middle of verse 20, but while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and it was, was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he began to kiss him and to kiss him and to kiss him and to kiss him. Man, man, the father wants the son to come back home. And, and I just think it's, this, is, this is so intriguing. And look at the slide on the screen. That it's not the repentance of the younger son that causes the father's love, but it's the reverse. It's not, the, it's, it's not that the son repented and then the father loved him, but it's exactly the, 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 the opposite of that, isn't it? It's that the, the son knew how much the father loved him, and so that made his repentance possible. You see, it's always, always God, the father's initiating love to invite us back into the home. So if, if you think... And if if I think that we're going to clean up our act and we're going to stop sinning and we're going to do a bunch of whole bunch of good things and then God will start loving us, we are mistaken. That won't work. You know it won't work because you've tried it. And I have too. But it says we discover how big the cross is 
and how much the Father loves us, that makes repentance easy for us. You know, you know, my wife is one of the most, April is one of the most gracious persons I've ever met in this world. And one of the reasons that it makes, me, makes it easier sometimes for me to repent of my sin against her, to say to her, Oh, honey, I really blew it on that. I am so sorry. That was all my mistake. I don't do that to earn her love, but it's easy for me to do it because she is so loving toward me. And I know that she loves me almost unconditionally. And it's that, it's that knowing that I'm already accepted by her and valued by her and loved by her that it makes it easier for me to turn to go in the way that I ought to go. And so it is with this younger son. It's, it's he's in that pigsty. He's thinking about his father's love and his father's kindness. And that's then what prompts him to be able to turn and repent and come back to his father. And his father shows him, I've been waiting for you the whole time because I love you and I don't hold this against you. And how about the older son? Now, his rebellion was not quite as obvious. And some of us have been surprised to realize that he is just as rebellious, maybe more than the younger son. It's just that he cloaks his rebellion in, in, in church clothes. He cloaks his rebellion in knowing memory verses. He cloaks his rebellion in being a church guy. But his rebellion, he, he, he doesn't want his father just like his younger brother doesn't want his father. They just want their father's stuff. And his, this older brother is self-righteous and resentful and he's angry. And so does the father say, until you get off your self-righteous high horse, you have no place in this house. No, the father doesn't do that at all. Because the father is always initiating his love. Look at verse 28. The older brother became angry and sulking and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. That's the way it always is. You see, even the most religious, even the most self-righteous appearing people, if it's not for God's initiating love and grace, none of them would come back into the house. It's always God's love. If you think that your good behavior is going to stir up God's love for us, you're, you're mistaken. But it's God's love for us that stirs up our good behavior. I want to just make this more practical, kind of land it for a minute here. Sometimes I find myself um, angry at someone. Uh, and I find myself not, lo- I, I, I realize I am not loving them like Jesus loves me. And, you know, and, and, um, uh, and, 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 and I, f- I find myself sometimes holding on to a hurt or a resentment or anger. And I'm sulking like this older brother was. And, uh, and, 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 and I'm standing outside and I have my arms crossed. And if you came to me and, and you said, Gary, why are you like that? I could give you a lot of reasons why I'm like that, right? Because let me tell you what they did to me. And you, as I told you what they did to me, you go, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say to you, it wouldn't be fair for me to forgive them. It wouldn't be just for me to forgive them. Um, it, it hurts too much. Uh, they don't understand how much they've hurt me. And, and, and you go, well, yeah, I felt like that before as well. Uh, but, and, but here's God's antidote. God's antidote to when I don't love people like Jesus loved me is to look back at the cross. 
And in and, and, and some of our, gro- in our growth groups, we've been talking about as the cross gets bigger in our view. The cross doesn't get bigger. The cross is huge already. But as the cross gets bigger in our view and we understand more of Jesus' amazing love for us, and that it's all about his initiating grace. And we, and we discover how forgiven we are in him when it wasn't fair, when we didn't get it, right? All those same things that I hold against others. Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Spirit could have held those things against me. But in this, as I understand and, and experience the cross getting bigger in my life and understanding that, then I'm empowered in a new way to love others like Jesus loves me. And, and to be more like the father who doesn't stay in the house, arms folded. I'm going to wait until my son comes and grovels before me. And then maybe I'll forgive him. So that's what I do to people. That's what I've done to my wife. That's what I've done to my kids. That's what I've maybe done to some of you. That's what I've done to people in my life. Until they get it. I'm not going to love them like Jesus loves them. And the more that I preach the gospel to myself, the more I retell the gospel story, and the more that that cross gets bigger in my life. And so what I need to do is be retelling myself of God's initiating love when I was still a rebel, when I was still self-righteous, and how the Father came out to meet with me and to plead with me to come back in. That's God's antidote to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Okay, you may remember in weeks one and two of our series, I think this is week, about week five or week six. I think in week one or maybe in week two as well, that we talked about that these, this is a story that Jesus is telling, right? It's a parable. It's, it didn't really happen. It could have happened. And things like it do happen, but this story didn't really happen. It's a parable or a story. But what we said was that Jesus is telling this parable to real people. So there's people that are sitting around or standing around, and they are listening to this story, and Jesus is telling this story to an audience. And um, uh, and and his they're in the group of people that he's telling it to, are, are a bunch of sinners, a bunch of overt sinners, a bunch of rebels. There's probably some prostitutes, and there's some, um, probably some drunks, and there's some guys that have crooked businesses and, and whatnot. And Jesus is hanging around those guys, and they're there. And then some church guys come, uh, Pharisees, uh, uh, teachers of the law. So they're in the same room. You have this weird combination of people that ought to be more, ought to be, happen more often of churched people and de-churched people. Churched people and done with church people. Church people and over with church people. And they're all there together. And the churched people are, are, are kind of mumbling to themselves. They're complaining and they're grumbling. And they're saying, why does Jesus keep hanging out with these unchurched people? And, 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 and I'm not making that up. It's in chapter, one, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear, hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable. 
So there's real people listening to this parable that Jesus teaches. Jesus' main audience is not the sinners, not the overt sinners. It's the Pharisees. It's the church guys. That's Jesus' main argument. Now, the others are listening, and the message is for them as well. Now, so Jesus' main audience are the church guys. Now, you might remember something else, that Jesus then tells this mixed audience, but mainly the church guys, he tells them not one story, but how many stories does he tell them? Three, Three stories, right? He tells them a trio of stories. Now, remember the first story. It starts there in verse 3. It's called, we call it the parable of the lost sheep, right? And it's about one lost sheep, and it's about a ran- the rancher or shepherd or whatever we want to call him. The rancher who recognizes that one of his, he has a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep wanders off. It strays off. And so what does he do? He gets up, and he leaves the 99 behind. I have not figured that out yet. How do you do that? How does he leave the 99 behind? But at great cost, apparently, because he's the one that scares the wolves off and scares others off and protects them and feeds them and whatnot. But he leaves the 99 behind, and he goes and he looks for the one lost sheep, right? He looks high and low, search and rescue mission, until he finds the one. And when he finds it, he picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, and brings it back. And then what do they do? They have a big party, right? They have a big celebration. That's the, that's the gist of the story of the, of the lost sheep. Now, the second story, and it's really not a second story in a way. It's a continuation of the first story. Now, how do I know that? Well, I look at verse 8, where Jesus, he, remember, Jesus didn't speak in verses. He spoke in sentences. And so there's no verse division and no heading division. And it simply says in verse 8, or, so Jesus doesn't even take a breath. He tells this story about the, um, uh, the lost sheep. Or he just keeps on going, right? I want you to see it that way. That it's in, a, in one sense, it's three stories. But in another sense, it's one continuous story. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. So the second story, as we call it, is the parable of a lost coin. A woman has ten coins. They're apparently very valuable to her. <clears throat> and one of them jumps out of her purse and rolls away. And she can't see it in plain sight. So what does she do? She turns on every light in the house. She calls in the detectives. Uh, CSI arrives. Uh, and, they, and they search high and low for this coin until they find... Nothing else happens in the house until they find this coin, Right? And then when they find this one coin, just one coin, remember? One sheep, one coin. When they find this one coin, what do they do? They have a great, big, huge party. Now, here's what we would call story three. But the text says it's really one story. Verse 11, Jesus continued. I just want you to see the continuity. Yes, it is three different stories, but there's a continuity. Don't look at one story without looking at the others. So Jesus continued. And he continues with our story, the third story. And this this story is sometimes called the parable of the lost son. And I would suggest that that's the wrong title for the song, for the, the parable. It's the parable of the lost sons, plural. It's just because how does Jesus start it? Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And his point is both both of them are lost, not just one. Now, one is overtly lost. The other one is lost, 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 maybe not as overtly 
as some would think, because things are not always as they seem. Now, these three stories have some similarities. I'm going to have you interact with me here for a minute. What are a couple similarities between all three stories? So look in the text, and and what are some similarities that they're the same in all three stories? Something's lost. Good. And now, what about the thing that's lost? Let's say something else about the thing lost. It's singular. Very good. Now, that's not a similarity, though. That's not true between all three stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's overtly lost. Is that what you said, Jimmy? Okay, and what did you say, Mark? It has value, right? What else? It's similar. That, that was a trick, Frank, that I gave you there. All, the, all that was lost was found. Yes and no. Right? Okay. What else is similar? A party when they're found, right? Good. Now, how about another similarity? Is is there any others? Do you see? There's an owner. There's someone that has possession. Very good. Jeff, I think you had some. That's not a similarity. Similarities. Joe. Um... Mm, not a similarity. <laughs> Maybe, because right, you're beyond me now. Okay, so we saw some clear similarities. Something was lost. The thing that was lost was very, very valuable. Uh, each time it was lost, uh, uh, there was a party. When it was found, there was a big party, right? That's a similarity between all three. What's that? There was, but that's not a similarity. That's good. That's good. You're going where I'm going to go, Jimmy. You guys are way ahead of me here. That's the danger of opening it up, because then you guys tell me the rest of the sermon. But thank you, you gave me a new idea. But there's something very different, very different, between story one, the lost sheep, and story two, the lost coin. And those two things have something very similar that story three, the lost son, does not have. What is startling that it's missing in story three. No one goes searching for the lost son. He was watching, but he didn't go searching. Now, uh, and it's unmistakable and it's surprising. It's conspicuous in its absence. In the first two stories, someone goes on a search and rescue mission, right? They stop everything they're doing. They turn the house upside down. They leave 99 sheep behind. But in the third story, no one leaves to go and to do a search and rescue mission for the first of the two Lost sons. So, and, 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 and that's what we would expect. Remember, remember I'm trying to press home that it's really one long story with three parts. Jesus is setting up a story, right? Jesus is the master storyteller. And so he tells the story. There's something lost. Someone at great expense went and looked for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And found it. And they had a party. Valuable. Second story. There's this coin that's lost. 
They stopped everything they did. They searched high and low. They called in the FBI and the CIA and the Russians and everybody came and they, they looked for it. And when they found it, they celebrated. But in the third, and then, then, and then in the third, third part of the story, there's this son who's so valuable and he's lost. And who goes looking for him? Nobody. I love telling stories, as you can tell. I love good stories. And, and one of the beautiful things about telling a good story is as you tell it, you, you're, you're, in a way, you're setting up for something, aren't you? And, and the best story is you tell something and you tell something else. And then people expect the story to go to one way and it goes another way, right? And that's what catches people's attention, right? Um, many of you know Silas and Vonjer Campos, our missionaries in Brazil. They're the neatest people. And a couple of years ago, you sent me down there to do a Bible conference with them. And I did a Bible conference. And so in one of the opening, at opening times of one of the Bible conferences, I want to tell this joke. And it's, it's a really funny joke. So Silas is interpreting for me, right? So I'm telling the joke. And I tell the first part of the story. And Silas, Silas is the best translator in the world. He's, he's telling it just like I'm telling it, right? And then I tell the next part, and Silas tells the next part. And like everybody is just like waiting for the twist, right? They know a twist is coming. And so I'm, I'm just, I, I, you know, sometimes I kind of milk stories or pastoral exaggeration. No, I know, I know. There was a time once when I did that. And so I'm just kind of leading up to it. And I said, I said, and I give him the next to the last line before the punchline. And I gave it to Silas. I said it to them, and Silas interpreted And they all started rolling in the aisles with laughter, and oh, they just couldn't believe how funny it was. And I look at Silas, and I said, Silas, you didn't. He says, I told the punchline. <laughs> oh, my gosh, what do I do then, right? But that's what a good story is, right? Is it sets us up and then it takes us somewhere a little bit different. And in a, way, in a way, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in telling this story. One story that has three parts. Someone, everyone that was there was expecting someone to go on a search and rescue mission with a helicopter and search dogs and flashlights and Facebook. But no one does. And it's striking it's striking. He's setting us up. And no one goes, and it's jarring that no one goes to search for the younger brother. Now, if Jesus is telling this story to church guys, right? And these are super church guys, right? They have not missed a Sunday. Now, you know it's synagogue, and I'm interpreting that. But these guys have not missed church in 20 years. Not once. They know their Bibles frontwards and backwards. And as they're listening to this story about two brothers, their minds are thinking Bible. You're thinking lunch. They're thinking Bible, right? And they're thinking, where else is there a story in the Bible about two brothers? And so they start at the beginning. What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. Genesis 1, there's no brothers. Genesis 2, there's no brothers. Genesis 3, there's no brothers. Genesis 4, there's two brothers, Cain and Abel, the first two brothers in the Bible. And what does God say to the older brother? In essence, you are your brother's keeper. 
He was trying to get out of it, wasn't he, the older brother, Genesis 4. He, he said to God, God, am I my brother's keeper? Well, of course you're your brother's keeper. It's not in the text, but it's implied, right? And so these guys sitting around the circle are thinking, we are our brother's keeper. So who should have gone searching for the younger brother? Who? Who? The older brother. Because he's, you, I'm, a, I'm my brother's keeper. And when my brother's lost, I should go searching for him. Instead of being resentful and proud, I should go searching for him. Pastor Tim Keller, who I'm greatly indebted for, for insights in this series, greatly indebted. Tim Keller tells this story during the Vietnam War of an a, 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 a American soldier who went missing in action. And this MIAA was not able to be found, and the word was brought back to his family here in America. And his family here in America worked through all of the channels to try to find where their brother was in Vietnam, whether he was alive or dead or captured, or where, where was he? They went through all the channels, and, but finally, n- nothing. They had no idea where their brother was, the younger brother. And so the older brother of the family, at his own expense, at great expense, he fly during the war, he flies to Vietnam, and he begins a search and rescue mission. He has a flashlight, and he has a compass, and he has all that he needs. And he searches the country of Vietnam for his lost brother. And, and the amazing thing was, as he came in contact with the Viet Cong, they allowed him to continue his search and didn't harm him. As he came in contact with American troops, not that they would have harmed him, but they allowed him to keep on his search. And it's said that some on both sides of the, of the war simply called this man who was searching for his brother, the brother. He was the older brother searching for his younger brother. This is what the older brother in the parable of the two lost sons should have done. And this is what the true older brother always does. The true older brother always searches for that which is lost. The true older brother would have said, my brother has been a, a, been a fool and he's been seduced and he's been led astray and he's wandered away and he's rolled away and he's rebelled and now his life is a mess but I will go searching for him and I will bear no expense whatever it costs me to discover and to find and to rescue and to carry my younger brother back on my shoulders and bring him back home. And we're going to have a party to end all parties at my own expense. And you see, it's always, someone always has to pay for sin. Someone always has to pay for foolishness. Now, you can make the younger brother try to pay for it, but he, he can never afford it. 
the people that have sinned against you, they will never be able to afford to pay you back. And so if you're going to forgive them, if I'm going to forgive them, I'm going to have to pay the price. I'm going to have to suck it up. I'm going to have to stop making them grovel and get it right and guarantee that it'll never happen again. I've got to tear up my lists of their wrongs and their failings and say that I am going to, I am going to pay the price. You see, forgiveness is free and unconditional to the sinner, but it's always costly to the older brother. It's always costly to those. Um, it's always free to the sinner, but it's always costly to the forgiver. Now, remember, I think it was in our second message, we toyed with the idea that when the younger son demanded that his father give him his share of the estate, that the, when the father then sold his land, the tradition was that you would give the older son two-thirds of the inheritance of the land value, and you'd give the younger son one-third. And we toyed with the idea there, I think it was in our second week together, that the father no longer owned anything. And I had some interesting discussions with some of you afterwards, and I don't know for sure. But to get the money that the father would need to split up the inheritance, I think he would have had to sell everything. And so the younger son took a third, and he went, and he wasted it, and he blew it all, and he had nothing now. But at the same time, the father, I think, and I could be wrong, gave two-thirds of the inheritance to the older son. And the reason, one of the reasons that I think that's the case is because of what the father says in verse 31. He says, the father says, my son, this is to the older son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. It seems like everything's been transferred to the older son in this story. And it's as if Jesus, in telling this story, is saying, in telling us this story and giving us in this story a very flawed older brother, I think the reason he's doing it is to make his original hearers and to make us long for the true older brother, whose name is Jesus, right? Who at incredible expense to himself, he doesn't just go to another country to look for us lost brothers and sisters. But he leaves the glory and the honor and the robes and the majesty and the feasts of heaven. And he comes down and is born a little, made into an embryo and, and then caused to be born and a refugee and, you know, run, has to run for his life from, the, from, from Herod and, and lives this perfect but difficult life full of a misunderstanding. And then, and then not only does he go to a far country, but he gives his life for us as the true 
older brother. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 um, tells us that he, he's not afraid. We've got to have that verse on the screen, Hebrews 2.11. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You see, he's this true older brother who gave up everything to search for us lost younger brothers and younger sisters. And every single one of us have rebelled against our father. Every single one of us have divorced our fathers and said, Dad, we don't want to have anything to do with you. And what that has deserved for each of us is alienation and and isolation and the Father's wrath. And so Jesus is telling this story for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is to make us hungry for a true older brother. So different than the brother in this story. This is, this, you see, this, is, this, is, this older brother is the Pharisee. He's the church guy who crosses his arms and says to people, when you start acting like I act, then maybe, maybe then you can earn God's love. But the true older brother, Jesus, he comes down and he lives with us and he lives in our messiness without any sin of his own. And he hangs around the broken and the messy and the rebels like me and like you. And he offers to us this free gift of grace. Jesus, the firstborn, the true older brother, who is stripped of his robes of glory so that you and I might be clothed in forgiveness and acceptance and value that not one of us deserve. Jesus, who offered his body, and his body was broken, that his father might run to us and throw his arms around us and kiss us and kiss us and kiss us. Jesus, who drank down the whole cup of the Father's wrath. Jesus, the older brother, who drinks down this whole cup of the Father's wrath so that you, so that I, could drink the cup of the Father's joy in the feast of heaven that will go on and on and on. And the more we preach this gospel to ourselves, the more the, the bigger the cross gets in our lives, the more we'll be able to reach out to the broken and the hurt and the pained in our world who don't live up to your standards and don't live up to my standards. But Jesus, the true older brother, goes after them and he calls us to go after them as well. And the bigger the cross gets in your life and in my life, the more you'll find yourself loving and embracing and caring about those people that have sinned against you and loving them the way that Jesus loves you. We're going to invite our worship team to come and we're going to share now in this supper of the Lord that reminds us that he is our true older brother. And so Jesus, would you, as we participate in this meal... As we take this bread and as we dip it into the cup, may we be reminded that you're bringing us back home and that you want to bring others back home.
That you search for rebels, you search for the broken, you search for the sinful. And you don't tell them to clean up their act and then to come. But you want us to announce the love of the Father as we go about this search and rescue mission in your power. We want, you want us to tell about the love of the Father that is waiting and watching with arms open to embrace us and to kiss us and to kiss us and to kiss us. Forever and forever. You are, you, our older brother, are so beautiful. And so we worship you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.